By the way, in case you haven't heard, my brand new book, Feel Good Productivity, is now out. It is available everywhere books are sold, and it's actually hit the New York Times and also the Sunday Times bestseller list. So thank you to everyone who's already got a copy of the book. If you've read the book already, I would love a review on Amazon. And if you haven't yet checked it out, you may like to check it out. It's available in physical format and also ebook and also audiobook everywhere books are sold. A friend of mine said to me, like, how many times do you see your parents per year? I said, you know, maybe once. And he said, okay, so you're going to see them 15 more times before they die. I remember hearing that and feeling like I got punched in the gut. Hey, friends, welcome back to Deep Dive, the weekly podcast where every week it is my immense pleasure to sit down with authors, entrepreneurs, creators, and other inspiring people. And we find out how they got to where they are and the strategies and tools we can learn from them to help us build a life that we love. Sahil has been one of the most requested guests on the podcast for ages. And the reception to his first appearance on the podcast was so strong that when he decided to come over to London, we thought, you know what, let's do a part two for the podcast. So in this episode, we talk about how to systemize life. We talk about strategies and tools for building better health and relationships. I'm not prideful about about trying to make progress in my relationship. So so if I can find ways, if I can find systems, tools, frameworks, whatever it is, that allow us to grow over time and that allow us to find the space to grow over time, that's impactful to me. We talk a bit about Sahil's journey from a finance bro to a content creator. And we talk about a few life hacks and mental health tactics that we can use to help build a life that we love. If I am not growing in some way as a human being, that's when I'm gonna be dead for me personally. I just want to be around people who push me to be slightly better than I was at whatever it is. Now, before we get into this episode, I've got a very quick announcement, which is that I'm launching a Telegram community for the podcast. Now, I'm going to be honest. Initially, the reason for starting this podcast was quite a selfish one in that I wanted to learn from cool and interesting people and apply their insights to my own life. And it's just generally easier to hang out with people if you invite them onto your podcast rather than if you just want to have a chat with them. But over the last 18 months of running this podcast, it's grown ridiculously fast. And actually, we've had so many messages and YouTube comments and emails and Instagram DMs and stuff from people talking about how much value that you guys have gotten from the episodes as well. And so, so we're planning to change direction a little bit in that instead of me just treating these conversations as a personal therapy session with the guests, which we might still do a little bit of, I actually want to learn more about you guys who are listening to the podcast or watching the podcast and understand what are the things that you would like to see from the podcast. And I really want to better understand what challenges you're going through, what struggles you're going through so that we can then kind of tailor the guests and tailor the questions to that. So that's why we are starting up this completely free Telegram community. If you hit the link in the show notes or in the video description, wherever you're watching or listening to this, you'll be able to sign up completely for free. It's always going to be free you will never have to pay a penny. The group is called The Deep Divers, which I think is kind of funny. And it's basically a group where I'll be posting some of the behind the scenes stuff from the podcast. But also as we get new guests coming on, I'll be asking in that group if you guys have any specific questions for the guest so that can help inform the direction of the interview. I'm also going to be posting a few polls and questionnaires and surveys in that group. So if you're interested in kind of sharing more about you and about your life, then you can do it through that group. And then again, that'll just help us figure out how do we best make this podcast as value add for you guys as possible. And we're also going to be using the Telegram group to give away some free freebies. Like for example, often authors on the podcast will come and they'll gift us like 50 of their books, for example. I don't need 50 copies of, <laughs> of an author's book, but it's the sort of thing that we can absolutely send to people around the world completely for free. Anyway, if that sounds good and you'd like to join the community, then do hit the link in the podcast show notes or in the video description, wherever you're seeing this or listening to this. And now let's get on with the episode. Welcome back to the podcast. We are meeting in person for the first time. So great to see you. How are you doing? In person is so much more magical, and I am stoked to be here with you. This is going to be great. Yeah. I would love to start off with a little bit of controversy that you've sparked on the internet recently. Okay. Uh, on Twitter, you tweeted something that actually my girlfriend sent me. Um, Uh-oh. That's and, never good. <laughs> and we actually did this thing, like, last night, actually. Okay. We had our first li life dinner last night. Oh, there night. you go. So your tweet said, my wife and I recently started a monthly check-in ritual. It's been incredible for our relationship of a life dinner. Um, 
what is the life dinner? And then why has this been particularly controversial? <laughs> the why has it been controversial question is going to be an interesting discussion. So the life dinner is basically a system for a little bit of structure in developing your relationship over time. Um, particularly when life gets hectic. And so I tend to think this happens a lot for either uh, a couple that has both people that are really like in kind of driven career roles and are really pushing and running and traveling in different directions, or after having a kid when your life becomes infinitely more hectic because you have you know a crazy person and a crazy human running around and developing. So I read about this for the first time several years ago. There's an entrepreneur named Brad Feld who had um, written a blog post, I think, about it and published. And I had read it and sort of just like logged it in the back of my mind as something that was interesting. Basically, the idea is you set, in his version, you set a single monthly date, like call it the first Monday of every single month. My wife or my partner and I are going to sit down over a dinner at some special place or at home, make a dinner, just the two of you, and really have like a semi-structured discussion of important things in your life. Like what's the most important thing in your professional life right now? What's the most important thing in your personal life? What are you focusing on? What are the kind of like things that are bugging you? What's the tension in your life, et cetera? Just really have like an open, thoughtful, hour plus discussion one-on-one. -on -one. And the idea is that life over time becomes more and more chaotic and you're not able to do that. And so having like a true line in the sand that you're going to do this at least once a month is a good way to just make sure that it's happening and continue to progress your relationship. Yeah. Um, so why was it so controversial? <laughs> so I think in general, relationship advice tends to be controversial because it's the same as like relationship advice, parenting advice, political commentary, you know, these things that like tend to be um uh, tend to elicit the reaction of like don't tell me what to do i i know everything i've already figured this out and the funny thing to me about like why it became controversial was i wasn't telling everyone to do it i was simply saying i have found this beneficial and here's how we do it and if you find it interesting like try it otherwise just ignore it and that's totally fine with me which is sort of the case with all of my content so i'm always blown away when i get responses that are like you're an idiot or like you're a devil you know you're the devil like i hope you get divorced you know like there were people that were replying to this like if you have to do this you're already going to get a divorce this isn't going to work um which to me like i can just laugh off because i have a beautiful and healthy and happy marriage and i personally just think like if you're not growing in your relationship and if you're not finding time for these discussions, um, you're going to struggle. And I don't like I'm not prideful about trying to make progress in my relationship. So so if I can find ways, if I can find systems, tools, frameworks, whatever it is that allow us to grow over time and that allow us to find the space to grow over time, that's impactful to me. Yeah. I love it. Like I'm big on systemizing systemizing relationships. I think it's such a a, a big hack. And one of the things that my brother and I often talk about is that um, a lot of gains in our personal life can be found through treating it more like a business. Mm. And actually, a lot of gains in our business can be found through treating it more personally. Mm. And there's like a little bit of a middle ground. Because, for example, no one bats an eyelid if you write down birthdays in a calendar mm -hmm. to remind yourself of birthdays. But that is systemizing a relationship. If you really cared, would you rem like you'd remember the birthday? You probably wouldn't. You recognize that like sometimes you need you need a little bit of a reminder. People say that, by the way, about oh, yeah. personal CRMs, like you know, the whole idea that 
no one, you know, there's like Salesforce, which is like a CRM tool for businesses to like remind you of people you need to ping and where they are in your sales cycle, et cetera. And a bunch of companies have tried to do that for personal things like yeah. birthday reminders sure. or like when's the last time you spoke to so-and-so for your network development. And a bunch of people push back against that. People say like, oh, you know, you're making it unnatural. You're making it like this automated, like you're just managing human beings and those are humans. You shouldn't do that. And so it just depends on where you sit on the spectrum of wanting to do that or not. Mm. I actually don't care if if I give this piece of advice and I say that this is the life dinner is something that helps me. If it's not for you, that's totally okay. Like if you don't want to systematize your relationship, that's fine. And I'm not going to tell you that I think you're going to get a divorce because you're not doing it. Like I, I just won't say anything. It's not, you know, if you have a great relationship without doing these things, I think that's awesome. If you talk to your wife tons and you somehow with a newborn find time to have these discussions daily, you're like a superhero in my book. That's amazing. We don't do that. It's very difficult, I find. And so doing these things, finding these little systems, I find is just super, super helpful. Yeah, mate, I'm fully yeah. f- fully yeah. on, on the same page with you on this. I've, I've tried so many different systems for personal CRMing over the years. Never quite stuck to one. Yeah. But the thing I come back to is I actually have a list in my Apple Notes just of people I want to stay in touch with. Mm-hmm. And the other day I was inviting some friends over for dinner and I just, I was thinking, have I, have I invited everyone? I, I, th- I think I've invited the people that I, I think I want to group up with this thing. And I just thought, you know what, let me just consult the list. And I realized, oh, I actually should invite this person, but I didn't think of them in that group because that group is uni- university friends and university friends I lump as like a category in my mind. Mm. But this person I met sort of outside university, but he gelled with the group. So I saw his name on the list. That's a great idea. Messaged him and he's coming. And now he's going to meet my, meet my uni friends. And just the by virtue of the fact I have a list of friends mm-hmm. I want to stay in touch with, it is now encouraging those connections to happen. I did this at one point with people in cities. So once college ended and I was no longer like with my core group of friends in one place, everyone had moved all over the place, like people were starting jobs in different cities, different countries, whatever. I realized that I needed to be deliberate when I traveled about making sure that like if I was in London, I need to make sure that I see my couple of friends that are in London that I know I like really want to see. And so I made a list of like in these big cities that I might be going to, who are the like five people that I know in those cities? And it's a reminder for me because like LinkedIn is okay for that. You can sometimes like search who do, you know, who are my first year connections, but you know this at scale, LinkedIn becomes a travesty. Like yeah. it's, it's a real disaster for me at this point. And so I can't really use it for that. And so having like a little list of that, like what's my little black book of people that I know yeah. in these different cities is actually a, you know, remarkable little hack. You mentioned but yeah, people like yeah. this. Sorry to Go cut on, you off. Please. The systematizing, uh, relationships thing does really bother some people. Um, And I'm just a big believer that like systems is actually a misnomer. People, when they hear systems, they start to think like, oh, we're becoming robots and we're not going to have a normal conversation. And like, you know, when people will read my content, they're like, oh, you know, he must not be normal in person because you're not able to just like have a conversation with someone. That's not what it is to me. It's like finding little heuristics, shortcuts, ways to save yourself time and energy that make your life easier in some way, that make your life better and easier, um, you know, at whatever it is you're doing. And so why not have those for relationships the same way you would for work? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's sort of like, uh, yeah, this, uh, like for, like, for example, systemizing workouts. If you have a list of the exercises you're going to do, I'm going to do these exercises three times a week and I'm just going to follow the plan. That's system. That's systemizing your health mm-hmm. in a way that really leads to results. Whereas the alternative thing of like spontane- spontaneity when I go to the gym is not really going to get anyone anywhere. Unless, of course, they would they want to be the person that 
I don't, just goes for a run when they go yeah. to the gym or, or whatever that might look. I mean, your natural like. bias as a human being is to do the easiest thing. Mm. Like our natural bias is towards slothdom. I always say that about myself for sure. Like I'm a, I consider myself an extremely disciplined and hardworking person, but my natural bias is still to be a sloth. Like if I wake up in the morning and I don't know what my first task is going to be of the day, I end up doing the easiest, dumbest task yeah. that doesn't actually drive anything forward. So what I had to do to systematize and make sure that that doesn't happen is the night before I decide what I'm going to do the next morning and I get it set up. Like if I need to work on a particularly challenging section of my book, I'm going to open up that section and I'm going to be zoomed in on that section so that when I get to my desk and open it up, that's the only choice that I have. It's sitting right there. And that's just like you're creating systems so that things get a little bit easier for you to go and tackle to fight that natural tendency yeah. to just be a sloth. Yeah. There's a, there's a great book I read over the weekend or listened to the audiobook of called Buy Back Your Time hmm. by Dan, Dan Martell. Martell. Yeah. 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 Um, and one of the things he he is very bullish on. Actually, uh, and and also yesterday, I listened to the audiobook for Lean In by Sheryl oh, yeah. Sandberg, mm -hmm. which is absolutely mind-blowing. It's really good. Um, and in both those books, they talk about, you know, systemizing relationships to, to some extent. In Lean In, Sheryl Sandberg talks about kind of making sure that like she has a system for when she's going to go home from work and that time with the family is blocked out and things like that. And what Dan Martell says in the book, which I, I found myself like fully agreeing with, is that the system does not reduce spontane spontaneity and creativity. It actually increases it because it means you now don't have to think about that. Mm -hmm. Like I know when I have like my date nights pre-scheduled with the girlfriend in the calendar for the next like three months based on our various schedules. That means that every other evening, if you're coming over, I can be like, oh, I've got this evening free. I don't have to think in the back of my mind of like, ah, oh, I've, I've just got to make sure we've got like some time for the relationship scheduled that week, but because mm -hmm. it's all pre-scheduled and it's just like so liberating and like a weight's taken off my shoulders yeah. when I know that we've got date night scheduled for the next two or three months. Yeah, I found that once I got more disciplined about my time and about blocking time for activities, I all of a sudden also had more free time within my day for those spontaneity, spon uh, like that all of that spontaneity to kind of bleed in. And so like an example of that, you know, Parkinson's law, the idea that work expands to fill the time allotted for its completion. I used to email all day because I didn't have a block of time when my email time was. And so I would literally just email like I'd pop open email and shoot some emails off and then I'd close it and do a little bit of work and then pop back into email. And what happened was my entire day, all of the like liminal moments, those little like the flex time in between calls or in between meetings or in between deep work was email because I was just filling it. And so suddenly you like you lose the breaks and you lose your time for those creative, interesting thoughts that are getting sparked, or you lose the conversation you had with your wife or the little playtime with your son or whatever it is, because it's being filled by this like sponge-like creature that you're not naturally limiting. Once I started taking advantage of Parkinson's law and actually shrinking and forcing the time for those activities into little windows, creating a real system around them, that unlocked my creativity 100x, I think. Nice. What are some other areas in which you found systemizing helpful for like personal or professional life? Ooh, so many. Um, let's see. So health for sure. Uh, having, I think having a set of non-negotiables has been a system for almost everything in my life. Um, you know, I say health, but having a, having a set of non-negotiables for your health, for your relationships, for your kind of like just daily existence, for your professional career, I think is extremely important. What I mean by that is here are the three to five things that I must do every day to function at my best. So for me personally, like on the, on the physical side, I'm a big believer that in order to show up as a husband and as a father in the way that I want to, I have to take care of myself physically and mentally. And that 
is love for those other people around me just as much as it is love for myself. Because if I'm not doing those things, I'm not the type of person that I want to be. I'm not taking care of myself in the way that I should, and I can't show up for them. And for me, that means I need to do 60 minutes of physical activity a day. I need to get in the cold plunge every single morning, and I need to be outside and going for a couple of walks every single day. If I do those three things, I know no matter what, everything else can go to shit And my day is great in that regard, and I'm able to show up in the way that I want to. So having that set of non-negotiables, like no matter what, I'm going to do these couple of things, is really important in every area of your life. In my professional life, all I need to do to feel that I checked my non-negotiables off the list is an hour of deep work, like true deep work focused on something that I find meaningful. If nothing else happens during the course of the day, I can just like sit back and say, okay, well, at least I did that. And when you have a young kid, sometimes days do just go to shit. It happens even before you have a kid, but it only gets worse over time. And so for me, like what that means is that I'm up early because I know that before my son wakes up is the time when I can guarantee I can get that. For me now, it's two and a half hours. I can get that two and a half hours in from five to 7.30 in the morning. And if he's sick or fussy during the day, or my wife needs help or my, you know, families in town, whatever it is, the chaos that just naturally happens, I at least got that period of work done. My non-negotiable was checked off the list. So having that across the different areas of your life, and for me, literally writing it down and like checking it off, whether in Notion or on a piece of paper, whatever it is, has gone a long way for making sure that I'm making progress on the things that matter to me. Nice. What other, um, other than the life dinner, do you and your wife or and other relationships, do you have any other systems that you found super helpful? I try to make sure that I'm checking in and having a conversation with one person every single week is a big one for me with friendships. Um, again, like a system for making sure that you actually keep up with the people that matter to you in life. This isn't about networking to me. I've never been much of a networker. Networking was like a big thing in the finance world where, you know, where I previously was like, you had to have a big Rolodex. That was like the thing everyone said, like, man, he's got a great Rolodex, whatever it was. I always hated the transactional what's, nature what's of What's a Rolodex? A Rolodex is like that old-fashioned... You should have a Rolodex. You would love what's a Rolodex. Rolodex? Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it was that old-fashioned thing that they used to have in offices that had someone's like infor- information on it, or you would put their business card in, and it was literally like a spinner. So it would it was alphabetized, and so you'd like open your Rolodex, and you could go to like the Bs, and you would have like Sahil Bloom was in there. You'd go to A, and you could have Ali Abdal, and like you would scroll through your Rolodex. It was like a, you know, it was like a contact list. Oh, that's clever. But it was, it was physical. Um, <laughs> Um, and so everyone used to say, like, you got to have a big Rolodex okay. in order to succeed in finance. And I just always hated this sort of fake transactional nature of those kind of um, those kind of mentalities and relationships. And so my thing is there is, you know, maybe 20, 30, 40 people in your life that are friends that, you know, you feel have impacted you and will continue to over a period of time. And you want to make sure that those friendships don't atrophy. And it's very easy to let them atrophy. And we're all guilty of that in some way, shape or form, because life takes over. You just are like doing things and stuff's happening. You don't live in the same place as the person, whatever. But it's very easy to find 10 minutes when you're out on a walk to just like text someone or call them and just say like, hey, was thinking of you. What's going on? How are things? Um, But if you don't have like a forcing function to do it, we just don't. You forget. Mm. Like life just happens. And so I'm I mean, this is one of my new things from 2023 is I'm trying to do that at least once a week. Mm. Just call someone and just say like, hey, what's going on? I was thinking about you. What's what's new in your life? And the challenge with calling is a lot of times people don't pick up. So sometimes it turns into a text and then it leads to an interesting conversation, whatever it might be. Just finding a reason to kind of like ping those people that you don't necessarily talk to every single day and catch up with them. 
How do you feel about proximity to family and friends? In what sense? In the sense of um, the value of... Uh, uh, okay, so r relationships with people that we care about always atrophy over time if left to their own devices. Mm -hmm. um, often people will move away from their parents or move away from the friends they grew up with. Mm -hmm. And then that just like decimates the amount of time you get to spend with them. Mm -hmm. um, to what extent do you think it's important to have kind of physical proximity to people that you love as a thing? Or do you think that it's broadly taken care of through like phone calls and visiting occasionally and that mm -hmm. kind of stuff? Um, I don't think there's any replacement for in-person interaction with people in terms of actually building and fostering relationships. I'm sitting here with you because I would much rather do this in person yeah. than do a Zoom. Yeah, you know, I like I literally flew to London so that I could get to do a few of these things in person and actually build relationships because that's what matters to me most in life. The single greatest predictor of health at age 80 is relationship satisfaction at age 50. The Harvard study of adult development found that. Longitudinal study, 80 plus years, that was what they found. The single greatest predictor of health at 80 was relationship satisfaction at 50. What does that mean to me? It means that I really, really care deeply about building and fostering deep relationships with people. I think there's certain breadth to it and you build relationships over time, but I want to meet the people that I can go deep with and that I can work with and that I can love in different seasons of my life. For me, that means spending time in person with people. And it's, you know, when you talk about your parents, that's the first one. This is the biggest life change I've made in the last several years. My wife and I dropped our entire life in California and moved back to the East Coast because we realized that our parents weren't going to be around forever. Um, you know, both of us had grown up in the Boston area. Um, my parents were, you know, getting into their mid 60s. And a friend of mine said to me, like, how many times do you see your parents per year? I said, you know, maybe once. And he said, okay, so you're going to see them 15 more times before they die. And I remember hearing that and feeling like I got punched in the gut. And the countable nature of the number of times you are going to see someone as close as your parents before they die is terrifying. Mm. It's terrifying to think that you can actually just count that on like, you know, almost on two hands at that point. Um, especially when you feel as close to them as I did. And so within 45 days of hearing that, we sold our house in California, moved back across to the East Coast and bought a house in the New York area so that we could be closer to our parents. And now, you know, we have a young kid. They get to be a part of their grandson's life. They're around all the time. I see my parents, you know, at least twice a month, maybe more. And it's an amazing thing, just getting to have those like nothing moments where you're just hanging out, where you're just talking to them. It's like there's absolutely no replacement for that. And it's something I will never regret as long as I live. Mm -hmm. um, so with parents, I think it's really important to realize they're just not going to be around forever. With friends, I think it's a little bit of a different story because you have seasons to your life. There's not one, you know, one act to your life play where you're the same person for the entirety of your life, nor are your friends the same person over the entirety of their lives. And so there are some friends who are a great fit for one season of your life and aren't going to be there in the next one. And that's okay. You don't have to keep trying to jam them in there. I have some amazing friends from my high school years who I'm no longer close with. I think they're lovely people. They're great in their own different ways, but we're just in different worlds now. We've gone about different paths and are doing different things. And I think that's totally fine. I think continuing to try to live with and be around people that aren't actually a match and that aren't developing you and you aren't developing them is actually a bad thing. And so being aware that it's okay to leave things behind, to like shed your old shell and move on to the new one like a you know a hermit crab does over the course of its life is yeah. totally 
a positive thing in certain cases. What do you mean by developing? Like a, a cynic might say that like, you know, the, the, the tech productivity bros like you and me would think that every relationship needs to be developmental in some way. Mm -hmm. What about just enjoying time with your mates from high school? I just think that enjoying time is developing. Mm. Like I, I think if I'm if I am not growing in some way as a human being, that's when I'm going to be dead for me personally. That's not maybe for everyone. Maybe some people don't feel that way and they don't feel like they need to grow. I just want to be around people who push me to be slightly better than I was at whatever it is. Right. And if that's slightly better at being able to let loose and have fun, that's a version of getting better for me. I'm not great at that sometimes. Sometimes I'm like so wired to be in the weeds on whatever it is that I need to get better at that. And so I do have some friends who are really good at letting me let loose. And I consider that to be developing in a way. They're helping me develop in a different way in, in, in my world. And maybe I'm helping them buckle down a little bit more in certain areas of their life. So... I don't say development in the sense of like scoreboard and, you know, here, look, here's how I develop. Here's how this person developed me. And if they didn't help me develop in this way, then I'm going to cut them out of my life. I really say it in the holistic sense of building a comprehensively wealthy life. Like I'm not trying to be the richest person in the world. I'm by any stretch of the imagination. I'm not gunning for that. I don't want that. What I want is to have an unbelievably balanced and fulfilling life and really spend it with people that I care about. Hmm. Nice. Um, so coming back to the controversy of this relationship stuff, yeah. um, you mentioned that when you see people responding to your thing, to saying that you're the devil or that yeah, yeah. you're kind of wishing you get divorced, you, you mentioned that you just laugh it off. Yeah. Uh, how, how do you do that? <laughs> because the, the concern about hate on the internet stops a lot of people from putting themselves out there. Yeah. Um, yeah. How, how have you, well, what strategies have you what developed are my over systems? time? What yeah. are my systems for the hate? Exactly. When I write about systems, <laughs> what are my systems for dealing with the hate That's that comes one. from the talk on systems? It's very meta. Um, no, it, all, all jokes aside, I mean, there's a few things that I've learned from the greats that have come before us, like the Tim Ferrisses of the world and people who have written about this in the past. Um, and then there's a few things that I've, I would say, developed on my own. I mean, one of the biggest ways is to just avoid reading comments when you see things taking a turn for the negative. So like with that life dinner one, I saw some of the early quote tweets and normally like, you know, for people that don't know Twitter that well, once you start seeing quote tweets ticking up like really fast alongside retweets, you know that there's some shit going down. Like you got it. You're like, ooh, okay, there's something happening. And for me, I was like, okay, I stand by this. I think this is a great idea. So I actually, I don't really care. That's fine. Like quote tweets are actually going to drive more people to positively see the idea. And mm. what it led to was tons of messages from people that are like, hey, this is a great idea. I tried this like you. Um, that are going to, you know, benefit from it in some way. So in any case, I saw the quotes you started to take up. First thing I did was I muted it. So I muted the conversation so that I would never get a notification about it. Because for me, that's like, okay, out of sight, out of mind. People mm -hmm. can say whatever they want about me. Fine. I don't care. And it was funny. Like you messaged me and you were like, hey, ho hope you're good. And I was like, I'm blissfully ignorant. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm waving around. Like I have no idea what's going on. It's totally fine. So that's number one. Number two is... When someone writes something mean about you who they don't know on the internet, that person is not a happy person. I've never met someone happy who has sat down and written something extremely negative about a person they don't know. It just doesn't happen. That person has some sort of pain or trauma or something in their life that is leading them to react the way that they are to this. And the most powerful thing I've ever read on this is like, you should default to empathy when you see someone react that way, because there's something going on in their life. I just had a conversation with a friend who had encountered this 
um, who said that he shot a message to the person that had sent the negative thought and said like, hey, I hope you're I hope you're all right. You know, I hope everything's fine. And the person replied and said, basically, sorry, you know, my wife, my my wife recently got diagnosed with cancer. And so the way that you worded this thing, it really rubbed me the wrong way. And that's why I reacted negatively. And he said to me, like, you know, what a thing, because I would have replied really negatively to his response. But instead, I defaulted to empathy and realized that there was this really challenging moment in this person's life. So that's the second one. The third one for me is like a little bit more of like a, I don't know, flex or a slightly arrogant version of this, which is I had a moment maybe like it might be like six months ago now where someone said something really mean and negative to me on the Internet. And I was like in the bathroom, I read it. And I was pretty bummed. I was like, man, this person doesn't know me. And then they said all these mean things about me. What is this? And I came back into my room and my son was in there. Uh, you know, my beautiful wife was in bed. I like got into bed. I have this nice house. And I was sitting there and I was like, huh, yeah, this is okay. Like, yeah, <laughs> you know, like I, here I am. This person's probably sitting in their mom's basement talking crap to me on the internet. And I'm like, I'm, life's pretty good. This is all right. Like, I can deal with it. I can take the heat. Like, if I if I wasn't comfortable taking the heat, I should get out of the kitchen. Um, so there's a little bit of just like the man in the arena, you know, the Teddy Roosevelt thing of when you're going to put yourself out there and you're going to be on in, you know, in the arena and on the arena on that stage these things are going to happen. You're going to draw some of it. People are going to be negative and that's okay. All right, we're just going to take a quick break from the podcast to introduce our sponsor, which is Huel. Now, this is very exciting because I've actually been a paying customer of Huel since 2017. I started eating Huel in my fifth year of medical school and I've been using Huel regularly ever since because, you know, I like to be productive. I, you know, my calendar is full with a lot of things and often I don't have the time or don't make the time to have a particularly healthy breakfast or a particularly healthy lunch. And Huel is fantastic for those occasions because it's 400 calories. They've got tons and tons of different flavors. My favorite flavor is salted caramel because for that you get 400 calories. You also get 40 grams of protein. Super hard to get enough protein in my diet these days, especially with, with trying to get hench and working out. Huel just makes sure that I get at least those 40 grams in the 400 calories. And it's got 26 different vitamins and minerals, which really helps with the whole healthy balanced diet thing as well. Now, I don't use Huel with every meal. I wouldn't recommend using it with every meal, but in those occasions where you find yourself reaching for a very unhealthy snack or about to order a really unhealthy takeaway, it's just absolutely fantastic for being able to have the option. Now, I use the Huel Black Edition in the mornings. It's very nice. I put two scoops of powder into my little blender type thing. I add water, sometimes a bit of milk, and that gives me what I need. But also for lunch, I like using the Huel Hot and Savory product that they've got, which is basically you add boiling water to this container of stuff and you can make yourself like a, they've got a really good cheese pasta type one, which is which is my favorite thing. And again, also all of these are nutritionally complete meals. They're all vegan. They all have all these nutrients and vitamins and minerals and stuff. And they're often reasonably high protein as well. And it's also ridiculously cost-effective. Like one of these meals is one pound 68 for a 400 calorie meal, which is like, a tenth of the price of what I would be ordering from Deliveroo instead. And so really, Huel is a perfect companion for a busy life where you want to get a lot of things done and you don't, if you don't necessarily have a lot of time to cook a healthy meal and deal with all the prep and all the shopping and all the cleanup, then Huel is a great addition to your life rather than a replacement for all of the meals in your life. Anyway, if that sounds up your street and you want to try out Huel, then if you head over to huel.com forward slash deep dive, that URL is a special URL which will give you a free t-shirt and a free shaker thing with your first order. And so yeah, head over to huel.com forward slash deep dive and thank you so much Huel for sponsoring this episode. 
This episode is very kindly brought to you by Trading212. Now, people ask me all the time for advice about investing because I've made a bunch of videos about it on the YouTube channel. And my advice for most people is generally invest in broad stock market index funds, which is exactly what you can do completely for free with Trading212. It's a great app that lets you trade stocks and funds and ETFs and foreign exchange if you really want to. And one of the great things about the app is that if you're new to the world of investing, you can actually invest with fake money. You don't have to put real money in. They've got a practice mode where you invest fake money and then it actually tracks what the market is doing in real time. So you can see, had I invested £100 into this thing, what would my return have been? X weeks or X months further down the line. Once you've got some comfort with that, then it's super easy to deposit money into your Trading212 account. You can use Apple Pay, like I do initially, or you can use a direct bank transfer. And then once the money is in your Trading212 account, then you can invest it in basically whatever you want. The other really cool feature about Trading212 is their pies feature. So what you can do is you can follow people who've created investing pies. For example, someone might have a pie where, I don't know, 30% of it's Apple and 20% is Tesla and 10% is the S&P 500. And you can follow people on the app and see what pies they've created. And you can see the performance of those pies. And then you can just copy and paste a particular pie into your own account. And so that means like, let's say you've got hundred pounds to invest and you've put 50 of it into the S&P 500, but you want to be a little bit more experimental with the other 50 pounds, you can invest it into a pie where someone else who's generally a pro or someone in their bedroom who just loves the markets has already done all the homework for you. Also, very excitingly, there's a new feature that they've added to the app, which is a daily interest on your uninvested cash. These interest rates may go up or down over time as the economic environment changes, but the cool thing is that you get paid out every single day if you're into that sort of thing. And so if you haven't yet started with investing and you want to give it a go, then you can download the app on the App Store and if you use the coupon code ALI, A-L-I, at the checkout, that will give you a totally free share worth up to £100. It's available on iPhone and Android and you can check it out by typing in Trading212 into your respective App Store. So thank you so much, Trading212, for sponsoring this episode. To what extent, if any, do you worry about... Uh, posting pictures of your wife and mm. son on the internet. I get asked this a lot recently. Um, I, on a scale of one to 10, one being, uh, you know, ultra controversial person, you know, Donald Trump, and 10 being flowery, you know, just posting pictures of beautiful fields of flowers. I'm probably like an eight and a half. Like my content is so uncontroversial on average and positive. I ne and I never attack people back. I basically just take it and whatever it is. The most controversial thing I can say is that you should have a, a monthly date night with your wife to talk about things. That's controversial for me. And like, I didn't even realize that was coming, but that's, con that's an eight for me. Um, because of that, I don't worry about it as much as I otherwise would. If I was like a five, I would worry about there being angry people that are getting mad about things that I'm doing. You know, I'm not like selling things. I don't do conferences. I'm not, uh, you know, doing things where there's going to be someone out there that feels like I hurt them or scammed them. All my stuff is free, you know, with the exception of an eventual book, which no one has to buy if they don't want to. Um, I tend to think that at least now, I don't worry about it a lot. Um, but there are instances where it kind of hits me. Like, I, you know, I'm in the grocery store with my wife and son and someone comes up and they're like, oh, is that Roman? You know, a random person that I've never met before that recognized me, him from Instagram or something. And that kind of makes me think where I'm like, hmm, once he no longer looks like an ambiguous baby, this might not be the best and smartest thing to do. Um, so you know, kind of long way of saying, I haven't really thought about the downsides and the risk to date. But will there be downsides and risks in the future? Yeah, probably. Mm. What about you? Yeah, it's something I've started increasingly thinking about. Um, like, 
I'm fairly public about my personal life. Well, I'm I'm fairly public about things like my finances on the internet. Mm -hmm. So it's easy enough for people to figure out how much money the business earns, mm -hmm. which they then extrapolate to how much money I am, uh, how much money I earn, which then they then extrapolate yeah. to how much money is in my personal bank account. Yeah. Uh, I don't do that. Yeah. I never talk about money. <laughs> um, you know, really, like I don't I don't post too much about it because I do think that that draw it. Yeah. You know, there's a plus side to it. People mm. love that kind of transparency and they learn a lot from it and they get inspired by it. Everything is risk and, you know, it's, it's yeah. just trade offs. Um, but anyway, sorry, continue. Yeah. So I do that kind of stuff. And increasingly, you know, now each year when I come to making the video, like I was talking to my girlfriend about it for the 2022 video, and she was saying that, you know, is this is this still a good idea? And that kind of made me think that like, hmm, I haven't, I haven't really thought about it mm. to date, but you're right now that like, especially if I have a wife and child and family and stuff in the future, I mean, I don't earn anywhere near as much as like footballers do and everyone kind of knows where they live based in London, but you know, London is, fa is a fairly safe city. There are other places in the world that are a lot less safe. Tim Ferriss had the blog post about reasons not to become famous where he talked about potentially, you know, getting kidnapped at random airports and random places that he would go to, which is why he has to use an alias and a fake name and book hotels under a fake name because they give, they sell their data sometimes to the kidnappers and, and all of those things uh, kind of made me think, huh, I wonder if I should reassess my approach to sharing stuff online, um, especially when a family gets involved with this kind of stuff. So I was yeah. just curious how, what your yeah. take on that was. I mean, my, um, it's a tricky question because I, think that in an era where AI will increasingly replace the actual content that is being created, especially written content first, then video over time, personality and human connection is really important. And I personally think that as robots and as AI becomes more and more of our life on a daily basis, people are going to have this like pendulum swing where they're going to really starve for and, th and, and crave true human interaction. And so for me, I have wanted to create that depth of connection with the people that are in my community that are following me. I like, I still reply to emails that people send me. I reply to DMs, you know, I have all this stuff open, even though my audience is now probably too large to do that in a scalable sense. But it's important to me because I want people to know that I'm a real person and that when they send me, hey, I'm wrestling with this, this or this, that like, there's a person that's actually reading that and trying to respond to them. I mean, I had, I literally had someone a few weeks ago, reply to me and say they were really concerned about their physical health and they were worried they weren't going to be around for their kid, you know, 10 years from now if they didn't get their weight in check. And and they were having trouble motivating. And I said, all right, well, do 15 minutes walk, just like walk for 15 minutes tomorrow and email me back and tell me that you did it. And they did that. And then I said, all right, do it again tomorrow. And then they did it again tomorrow. And it's just, it's interactions like that, that I really love. Like, that's why I do this. It's because I feel like I can actually create an impact and create value in people's lives mm -hmm. from my desk in New York, which is unbelievable to me. It's a crazy, crazy thought relative to the path I was on previously. Giving that up by not being as human as I feel like I naturally am feels like I'm giving in to dark and negative forces that I don't want to give into. Hmm. Yeah, that, that's, a, that, that's, a, that's a nice way of putting it. I've kind of been feeling the same thing where, you know, in an ideal world, I would like to share more because I think there's value in sharing mm -hmm. transparently about things and kind of that, that human connection. But there is that. Yeah, I, I guess it's just about weighing up the risks and the benefits. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, like, look, uh, I have made plenty of money. I'm doing well. 
I'm not the richest person in the world. Like if you want to go rob someone because they're super rich, there's plenty of people on the internet that are richer than me that are like really public about stuff they're doing with money. And I'm sure people can find them. Um, so I don't, and I don't strive to, I'm not trying to be the richest person in the world either. That's just mm. not like what I really write about or what I talk about. It's just not part of my thing. Um, I want to be extremely balanced and I want to share ways that people can think about their life so that they can build that same comprehensively wealthy existence that I feel like I've found. Um, and if that pisses people off along the way, I'd be surprised. Mm. I don't, I just, I really try to avoid things that I think are going to piss people off because I don't see a ton of value in it. I'm not one of the people that's going to like intentionally throw out rage bait controversy just so that I can yeah. get a bunch of views. So there's sure. plenty of ways to get views and that's not really one that I find fun. Mm. What's so you mentioned this idea, I, I, I guess, like comprehensively wealthy a couple of yeah. times. What, what do you mean by that? So wealth beyond money, changing the scoreboard, right? Like, you know, this is what my book is about that I'm mm. working on now. It's basically this whole idea that we have been so narrowly focused on money as the sole definition of wealth throughout, you know, the last several hundred years because it's so easily measured. You look up at the scoreboard and your money scoreboard and you can see it ticking up and down on a daily basis, right? Like, I don't know if you've ever used Mint or Personal Capital or any one of these platforms, people refresh that thing daily just to see like, oh, did my number go up? I feel good. Did it go down? I feel bad. And that's how they measure their whole life. And that's how they stack themselves up against everyone else. It's a, it's a daily scoreboard that you can look at. And I think we need a new scoreboard. I think that in order to live a truly happy and fulfilled existence, we need to expand what is on our scoreboard. And we need to think about these other areas of life. We need to think about our physical health and vitality. We need to think about our mental health, mental fitness, mental vitality. We need to think about our social wealth, cultural like environments that we're in, um, you know, the people, the depth of relationships. And we need to think about our time, most importantly. We need to think about being time wealthy and being able to actually use our time while we can use it. There's this tendency of humans of like, deferred happiness syndrome. Like, oh, I'm going to do all those things once I get to this point in my life. I'm going to go on that vacation, travel the world once I can afford it, or once I've saved up this amount of money, or once I've reached this phase of my career, because I don't want to sacrifice a year of my career, you know, trajectory now, and then have to start back there next year. And the reality is you're never going to do those things. And if you do do them later down the line, you're just going to enjoy it less. Time in the future is worth less than time today. It's just discounting. What do you mean? You know, it's the same as money, right? Like a dollar in the future is worth less than a dollar today. It's the same with time. Like, you know, a year, a year long trip around the world at age 55 is less fun than a year long trip at age 35 because the things you can do as a 35 year old single person traveling the world are unbelievable. Mm. And like I had a friend recently who I had this discussion with who is 27 years old. He was on a path, you know, consulting, getting promoted, patted on the back, McKinsey, like things are great. You're at, you know, you went, you're winning the game. Like you're going to be a partner by 30 and that's like your calling card to life. Like Indian parents, man, you're like really, really nailing, winning the game. And he wanted to go travel for a year rather than doing an MBA. He wanted to go travel and see different cultures. He had never traveled much. And he said, all of the partners are telling me it's like the worst decision because I'm going to miss out on this year's, this year of growth. And then I'm not going to make partner by 30. It might take until I'm 32. And so I don't think I'm going to do it. And I was like, dude, you're an idiot. I just was like, that is the dumbest reason to not do it. Because those years, you're never going to do this again. This is your one chance to do this. You can tell yourself, oh, I'm going to do it. You know, I'll do it 
you know, once I've been a partner for a while and I made a bunch of money, I'll do it when I'm 50. You won't because you're going to have kids that are in school. You're going to have kids that you're going to have to pay to go and do all sorts of different activities. You might have a wife, you know, you're going to be all over the place and your career is just going to have this gravity. It gets harder and harder to do over the course of your life. So if you don't do it now, you're not going to do it. So if you're comfortable with that, then that's fine. You can make that decision, but don't convince yourself that you're not doing it today because you'll do it later. Hmm. I like to be I like to be aware whenever I find myself in that in that model of thinking. Uh, I've been doing it a lot recently because we're now in the sort of final month of editing for the book. Mm. And so I keep on thinking in my mind that like, oh, this is a thing for after the book is done. And the other day, um, it felt a bit awkward to admit it. Um, it's, but the other day, actually, like a, a couple of days ago, my mum, me and my grandma, we were invited to drive to an old friend's house mm. to have a dinner party. And I was thinking, oh, I really don't want to go. And it was like 4 p.m. And I was like, oh, you know, we've got to be there for seven. I'm going to have to drive for two hours. And then my mom and grandma don't enjoy listening to music in the car either. So just like literally driving in silence with the occasional bit of chatter. And I have this book deadlines coming up and this, all, all these things I need to do on the book. And I initially called my mom saying that, yeah, how important is it that I go to this dinner? I don't really want to go. And she was like, oh, well, you know, think about it. It'll be nice if you come. And then I thought like, I, I, I reflected on the thing that uh, Tim Urban has written about like the tail end, mm -hmm. like the last number, the last few times you're going to spend with your loved ones. Yep. And I was thinking in the future, will I, will I ever think, damn, I really regret not spending an extra three hours on the book? Or am I more likely to think, damn, I really wish I could have one more road trip with my mom and grandma. And I was like, obviously the road trip. Yeah. Let's, who cares if I, like, it's going to be a, a bit boring <laughs> in yeah. the car for some of the journey. Like, yeah. I'm so glad I made that decision. And it was quite fun at the, at the at the dinner as well. I met some new people, um, but I, I I keep finding myself kind of catching myself being like, oh, if I I'm trying to defer something for one when the book is done, because in my mind when the book is done, it's like it's just around the corner, and yeah. you know life will be easier then. But then I remind myself, no, hang on, li life's never going to feel easier. Yeah. There's always going to be more stuff coming up, and yeah. so if it's important, then it's going to be if if it's important, then it should be important now rather than important yeah. in the future. The yes, damn effect. Have you heard of this? No, what's up? The yes, damn effect is this idea that uh, we say yes to things and then later say, damn, why did I say yes to this? And it's so true with most people. Like you say yes to something with the assumption that you're going to have more time a month from now. Mm. So you say like, oh, yeah, I'll do that call next month or yeah, I'll do that speaking engagement next month because I'm going to have much more time after the book. Mm. I'm going to have much more time after X, Y or Z finishes. I'm going to have much more time after the semester ends or whatever it is. And then you get there and you're like, damn, why did I say yes to that? So the rule with the yes, damn effect is anytime you say yes to something under the assumption that you're going to have more time for that thing in the future, you should just say no instead, because you're never going to have more time in the future, unless there's something actually structurally changing in your life where you're going to like make a whole bunch more time or you're quitting your job and you like there's something massive structurally changing, you're not going to have more time in the future. Especially not as an ambitious person, you're just going to take on some new thing that is going to fill that time. Yeah, I found that while I was still working full time, I kept on deferring a lot of things. I was like, oh yeah, once I well, once I quit the job and I'll have all the time in the world yeah. to be able to do this and this and this and that, and I ended up working more hours on like the YouTube stuff and the business stuff than I ever worked as a doctor. And suddenly all that free time disappeared. I was like, whoa, shit. Yeah. <laughs> Where did all that free time go that yeah. I promised myself I would have to be able to play more World of Warcraft or yeah. whatever? Which is all gone. I mean, Tim Ferriss, I think, was one of the first people to ever really talk about this in Four Hour Workweek. He talked about how there's this massive class of professional workers who, you know, work in banking or consulting or doctors or whatever it is. 
where you ask like, hey, why are you why are you working so hard? Why are you doing this? And their answer is so that they can do X, Y, or Z when they retire, so that they have the money to do X, Y, or Z, so that I can retire in Greece, or so that I can like buy a vineyard and go retire on this vineyard, you know, in Napa or whatever it is at the end of all that time. And the vast majority of them don't do it. The Wall Street Journal just released, I don't know if you saw this, the Wall Street Journal released a, um, a breakdown of how people spend their time in retirement. Oh. And it was horrifying. Because it was like four and a half hours a day of watching TV was one of the things on the list. And it was basically a call to action of if you think that you're you know, doing all of this work today so that because you're going to have this gl glamorous retirement living on the beach and you know sipping pina coladas, you're kidding yourself. What you're going to end up doing is sitting around and watching television because you're going to be 70 and you're not going to have the energy and the physical health to go do all those things. Probably you're going to have to be stuck at home. And for me, what that means is I really want to enjoy the present. Like I want to be able to jump on a plane on Monday morning, fly to London, see you, have a great dinner together, and then fly back. And I have the flexibility to do that in my life. So why not do it? Because I want to do that now. I don't want to wait until I finish my book or until I hit some financial milestone that's arbitrary, that's just going to change as soon as I get there to whatever the next thing is. I want to really embrace and really enjoy this present moment. There's got to be a balance there, right? So um, you might have come across the book, The, the Defining Decade. Yeah. Um, there, oh, there are, there are friends of mine that are, are reading it recently. Yeah. I can't remember who it's by, but basically defining the, the defining decade argues that your 20s are the, are the defining decade. And actually, your 20s are, you know, to quote Gary Vee, your 20s are for hustling. Well, actually, I don't know if that's what Gary Vee says these days. Um, but your 20s are for, for hustling and trying to get ahead in your career so that you can actually set yourself up financially to be more chill and have more free time and stuff in your 30s when you have a kid for the first time and have the flexibility to spend more time at home. And it feels to me like that's kind of one side of the equation that kind of actually it's worth working the extra hours at McKinsey to get ahead to build up that flexibility versus, hey, I just want to travel the world for five years. And then what if you end up in a place where actually mm -hmm. financially you're not able to hop on a plane on Monday yeah. and chill in a, yeah. in a restaurant with your, with your, yeah. with your mate in yeah, London? Yeah. I mean, I'm 32, so yeah. I'm after my I did, and I did that. I did the 80 to 100 hour weeks from the time I was 22 until yeah. the time I was 30, basically, that, until I was 29. It, it seems like now you're chilling. Yeah, and that built a f financial foundation that mattered, and it allowed me to actually see where the gold was on my playing field. Like, you know, if I had a map that I was uncovering as like a video game character around my map. I spent those years working so much that I found all of the different areas of my map and where I thought the gold was, like where my highest leverage opportunities were to go deep. And then I'm able to dig in those areas, which might not take more than a couple hours a day and do much better because I'm just digging up gold. I'm not digging up a bunch of crap. And so that matters. Like, I really do believe that. The problem is the people that say, like, I'm going to hustle in my 20s so that I can chill and spend time with my kids in my 30s. They are not going to do that. They are not going to chill and spend time with their kids in their 30s. They're just going to keep hustling because you get to your 30s and you're on a track like at a McKinsey or at an investment bank or as a doctor or whatever. And then what you say is like, oh, well, you know, now I'm now I'm doing well. I want to do even better. Like now I made my first million. I want to make three million. I want to make five million because what it is, is it's a mirage. You're like, it's not just an age where all of a sudden you wake up and you're like, now I'm going to spend time with my kids. Everything's great. No, you're like a VP. And you have tons of responsibilities and the gravity of that career track has only increased keeping you in it. And the golden handcuffs have only increased because your lifestyle has crept up over those years. So now, you know, you might be making half a million dollars a year feeling rich, but 
your whole life has crept up. You're living in a nice apartment. You know, you've got high tax rate. You like got the nice car that cost you $1,000 a month. And all of a sudden you're like, well, crap, I actually got to make a million dollars for myself to feel rich. And then you make a million and you're like, damn, I got to make $2 million to actually feel rich. And so what happens is you don't get to 30 and start chilling to hang out with your kids. You hustle through your 30s thinking I'm going to I'm gonna chill at 40. And then you get to 40 and maybe you are ready to chill, but your kids don't want to hang out with you anymore because they're 10 and they have friends. Like the time from by the time they're zero to 10, I've seen someone call it the magic years, like that period from zero to 10 where they actually care about you so much, like you are their favorite person in the entire world. And yet we work so hard during that period of time. We have no time. We're traveling. We're doing whatever it is. And that's a real travesty in my opinion. And so if you could actually do that, if you could hustle in your 20s to build the foundation, to figure out your highest leverage opportunities, and then dive in to where those high leverage opportunities are, that's what I'm doing. And I think it's amazing if you can make it work. But most people won't do that. Most people will just continue to work harder and harder because they see whatever the next version of more is, whatever the next mirage is on the horizon, and they just keep blindly walking towards it. Hmm. Have you seen the, um, or have you read um, the This Is Water speech, David Foster Wallace? Yeah, I've, I've come across it from a few, a few different sources. Okay, so, yeah. you know, it's like, um, he starts it with this parable that these two fish are swimming along in the water and an older fish swims on up to them and is like, hey boys, how's the water? And the two other fish kind of continue swimming along and then one of them looks at the other one and says, what the hell is water? And it's this whole idea, like, you know, tongue in cheek, cheeky comment of, we're very much blind to our most obvious realities. And when you are on that hustle phase and when you're continuing to progress and doing all of those things, you are blind to these obvious realities of the things that you're missing. You're just, you, you've grown accustomed to what that track is and you need to continue feeding that track because our culture just tells us that success means getting promoted every two years, that success means getting a pay raise of 10% every year, that getting the big bonus, that's what success looks like. And so that's what you have to actually go and do in order to continue to feed that beast in your life. Mm. Yeah. I'm just thinking like, <clears throat> is there a, is there an easy, mental model for this to kind of balance out on the one hand the idea that you you got a hashtag hustle in your 20s yeah. to build the foundation versus you actually do want to chill yeah i mean i think yeah. it's um the way i've always thought about it the like simple heuristic for it is you work hard first so that you can work smart later okay those two were always played off of each other in tension it was like you're either working hard or you're working smart and I just don't, I don't think they're intention. I think they're sequential. I think that it's really important to work hard early in your career. I will never tell anyone like, oh, don't, you know, just work smart early in your career. Bugged me to no end when people would join, you know, our firm as 22 year olds and want all this balance and want to be able to like spend time with all their friends and, you know, have the high paying job. And it's like, I just think you have to pick one. You can spend time with tons of your friends and like go work at the cushy, you know, Google gig or whatever. But that wasn't the career track we were in. You need to work hard if you want to accelerate and build great things. Um, and then you can work smart once you've done that, once you've built that base, once you've built that foundation. The hard work is important because of what I said earlier. You need to uncover the map. You need to uncover what the high leverage 
opportunities are for you because you don't know when you're starting at age 22 you have no idea what's out there you don't know what you're good at you don't know what you're bad at you don't know where the gold is on the map you don't know where the gold is going to be on the map in the future because you have no heuristics you have no tools at your disposal you're just starting to learn and the hard work the saying yes to tons of opportunities that come your way the hours that come with that that's what allows you to see the map i mean the same goes for content creators it's like I don't know a single content creator that has become big that didn't grind in the early days of getting things going. There's no easy way to do it. There's no like hack to building one of these things. You spend hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours creating and banging your head into a wall and frustrated because something didn't take off the way you thought it should. But all of those little things contribute to where you are in the end. It's like the stone cutter analogy of, you know, the stone cutter cutter is chipping away at the stone over and over again. You don't see a single, you know, chink in the stone and then suddenly the whole thing breaks. And you would never say that those hundred cracks at it had no impact. They clearly were just doing a little bit of damage, a little bit of damage, a little bit of damage that you just couldn't see, but they were an integral part of actually splitting the thing open at the end. Mm. And so I think that exact same thing applies to the way that we work in our lives. You have to do all of that hard work up front because that's what allows you to effectively work smart once you get to that point. Hmm, nice. There's, an, there's another way I've been sort of slowly thinking about it, I think prompted by something that Naval once tweeted, um, along with my own my own kind of thoughts on what does like, re, what does retirement mean? Mm-hmm. And I think I kind of sort of synthesize this into like three things. Retirement is either where you have so much money that you're, your expenses are taken care of and therefore you don't need to work or where your expenses are so low that the money you do have coming in is like you know the lean fire and all that kind of Mm -hmm. stuff is so low that actually you're functionally retired and you don't need to work Mm -hmm. or where the stuff that you're doing for work is the stuff you would be doing anyway and therefore you feel like you don't need to work yeah and i feel like for me i've been like i've spent my 20s trying to kind of tick all three boxes Mm -hmm. Um, doing a bit less well on the sort of lifestyle inflation front, but that's kind of always, always a little bit in the back of my mind. Let's try and let's try and make money, preferably through hashtag passive income, so that it's not directly tied to my time. But at the same time, let me try and move to a place where the work I'm doing is the work that I actually would choose to be doing, even if I wasn't being paid for it. Yeah. And so these days, I feel so grateful because, like, it's a Tuesday morning today. I got up, I had a shower. And I was so excited to do a one-on-one with Angus, my general manager. And then I was so excited because we had some team meetings where we were planning out content. And then I was super excited for this, that we're going to hang out afterwards for dinner as well. I was just like, damn, I can't believe that this is what I get to do for work. It's a cool feeling, isn't it? Yeah, it's mental. And people looking at my life would say, oh, you work too hard. Um, but I'd be like, it, it, it really doesn't feel like it. And I played loads of Hogwarts Legacy for the, like, you know, over the last couple of weeks. It's really yeah. good. Um, and that's kind of been the future that I've been yeah. trying to trying to work towards ever since the age of 18 when I read the four hour work week for the first time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the um, the points you made are really good ones, right? Like my my whole setup and what I've been trying to build is very similar. It's like I have all this media stuff that I do, the writing, the creating, um, you know, the brand building that is part of what I do and a, a challenging part in terms of the time and the energy that I put into it. But I'm untethered from having to do that because I have this holding company that owns, you know, today six businesses under it that are cash flowing a whole lot and that are continuing to grow and that I don't have to operate every single day because there are competent people running all of them. And so there's this amazing cash flow engine that I don't touch and that I actually shouldn't touch because I'll probably go screw something up with it if I do that 
unlocks me to go and focus on the things that I really enjoy on a daily basis so that I can fly to London for a day to go see some people and do things like this and not have to worry that I'm not like replying to emails or, you know, getting something done or posting on the cadence that I necessarily need to post on Mm. because it has no impact on my overall financial status. Um, And that's an amazing feeling. I am delighted to say that this podcast is very kindly sponsored by 80,000 Hours. And 80,000 Hours is one of my favorite organizations in the world. They are a nonprofit that helps people have a more positive impact with their career. And the reason they're called 80,000 Hours is because a career is on average 80,000 hours long. It's around 40 hours a week for 50 weeks a year for around 40 years, which adds up to 80,000 hours. That's a very, very, very long time. And so the objective of 80,000 Hours is to help you find a fulfilling career that also has a positive impact in the world. And the best part is they're a complete nonprofit. They are not trying to make any money from this at all. And so the organization is sick. I've interviewed a bunch of their members here on this podcast, and they've literally spent the last decade conducting a bunch of research around what makes a career fulfilling and also what makes a career positively impactful on the world. They've been doing this research alongside academics at places like Oxford University. And actually for me personally, when I was struggling to figure out what to do with my career, I basically binged every single post on 80,000hours.org, which is the website. And I also had a careers counseling session with one of their careers counselors. And those two things, just like reading all this stuff, understanding what are the factors that actually lead to an impactful career, and how can I combine those with my own personal passions and skills really helped me to formulate that actually this career as being a quote thought leader, YouTuber, podcaster, whatever I'm doing now actually felt more meaningful and impactful for me than continuing to be a doctor. So yeah, everything they provide is completely free. They're a nonprofit and their only aim is to help you find a fulfilling and impactful career. And if you want to get a completely free copy of their in-depth career guide, then head over to 80,000hours.org forward slash deep dive. And if you enter your email over there, again, completely for free, they're not trying to make any money from this. If you enter your email, they will send you the career guide, which is basically the crash course in the main ideas that make for a fulfilling and high impact career. So head to 80,000hours.org. That's eight zero. 000 hours h-o-u-r-s dot org forward slash deep dive and that will give you so much more information on how to start planning or changing your career to something that's fulfilling and meaningful and has a positive impact on the world so thank you so much eighty thousand hours for very kindly sponsoring this episode the other way that I've, i kind of think about this is um in the context of tabletop board games hmm. um there's you know games like uh Catan and these yeah. other more kind of fanc- fancier ones there's always some kind of you, so, some kind of production engine or some kind of economic engine, mm-hmm. whether it's, you, you know, in Agricola, you have your little workers in the farm and you're mm-hmm. generating units of food mm-hmm. or you've got your little sheep and you're generating units of sheep mm-hmm. or in Catan, like wood and hay and yep. stone and all that crap. And whenever you're playing one of these board games, you have to have an economic engine of some sort. Yeah. You you can't just play the game and just be like, I'm just going to build an army. Like, yeah. with, with what? Like, yeah, yeah. You've got to have some kind of production machine. Mm-hmm. And so in my in the back of my mind, there's this analogy of everyone everyone needs an economic engine of some sort. Mm-hmm. Either that's the trust fund from your parents or from your grandparents or whatever that might be, in which case, great, or rather not not so great. Um, but, but you've got to figure out what's, what's going to drive that engine. And preferably, and I guess this is the place where you've gotten to with your holding company, the more you can untether that from your physical hours invested, the more you're able to unlock freedom yeah. and optionality for yourself. And that means you can choose to, you know, move across the country to hang out with your parents or come to London or it just unlocks freedom in your life. Yeah. And that's the freedom to choose to invest in the things you actually want to invest your time in. Because the objective isn't to sit in a beach sipping pina coladas. The objective is to, you know, at least for me to, you know, have freedom away from the things I don't want to do and freedom to do the things that I actually do want to do Mm. without feeling like I'm shackled to a job that is forcing me to do a certain thing. Do you ever feel that way with creating videos? Do you ever have to like feel like, oh man, I have to create a video this week and I'm not excited about what I have to create? Yes. 
And that whenever I feel that, like that's always a little bit of like a, <laughs> hmm. I was feeling that a lot for our part-time YouTuber Academy, which is the life course that I've been running for the mm -hmm. last two and a half years, which is why this is like, we're in the middle of our, the very last one, because I realized that yes, it's making a couple million a year, but like it's, it's not worth it because when it comes around to it, I do feel like I'm having to do it. Mm -hmm. This time around, it's different because I'm like, I'm doing it for the last time. Yeah, so yeah. now I'm really bringing all the energy, energy and it's like it. so good. Sure. Um, I go you, back to the, yeah. um, you mentioned Naval earlier. There's a Naval quote that has been, that has like always really resonated with me and it kind of defines what I'm actually going after in life. And it was a fit body, a calm mind, and a house full of love. These are things that cannot be bought. They must be earned. A fit body, a calm mind, and a house full of love. And that to me is like my guiding light mm. when I think about things. Like, what do I want? I want to achieve things that have to be earned, that cannot be bought. That, and that's what I want in life. I want to go after the things that I have to earn. I just think there's this massive importance of actually going out and earning things rather than being given to you mm. or rather than just being able to, you know, buy them and, you know, manifest them yeah. through money. Um, it's like uh, if you were to be placed at the top of a mountain today, like we picked you up out of here, out of this chair and dropped you off at the top of a mountain, you would pass out because you wouldn't be acclimatized to the altitude. You would literally pass out. And the same goes for anything in life. If you haven't earned it through actually going through the climb, you're going to get there and you're going to get knocked out cold because you haven't grown acclimated to the to the altitude over time. It's the reason, in my opinion, people that win the lottery often go bankrupt or people that come into a ton of money like athletes often you know, make a ton of money at a very young age and end up going bankrupt. Because if you feel like you haven't earned it, you haven't had those incremental steps along the way to actually like build up that understanding of what it is and what you need and what you know you're kind of acclimatizing to it over time it's really challenging when it's all of a sudden dropped into your lap and so i'm really focused on those things that i have to earn and really going after those um and pursuing those in a deep way my way of thinking is similar it's less about things i have to earn and more about well i guess uh somewhat similar because it's more about will i personally learn something from doing this mm -hmm. And so, <laughs> for example, in this recent cohort of our course, like I read a load about sales and marketing, and now I feel I have leveled up my own personal personal stock price or personal like money-making power mm -hmm. because I now understand at least something about sales and marketing and have applied it in this mm -hmm. context. And now I, you know, Dan Cohen and Dickie Bush were talking about it in a, in a podcast the other day that I, re I really vibe with the idea of rather than financial security, financial confidence. So financial security, I think, is the thing that I've been chasing for feeling like a 4% withdrawal rate and let's have a couple million in the S&P 500 and all that kind of stuff. But it's I've never felt financially secure because it always feels like I need more and more money to build up more and more of a safety net. Mm -hmm. But since I started thinking in more in terms of financial confidence, it's more about regardless of what happens, I have the skills needed to make money if, if need be because I know how to build a business, for example. And that has given me more confidence to be able to adapt to other kind of environments. And I found that since switching my thinking there, I've gone away from the scarcity thinking of, oh, but I really should, I, oh, I really should film this YouTube video because we have, we, we've got a sponsor deadline and like, oh, I kind of feel like I have to do it. And more towards, who cares? Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, right now things are going well. If things ever end up not going well, I've got the skills to be able to build something up from scratch, completely from scratch if I wanted to. And the more I feel like I can embody that financial confidence, the more it, frees me up mm -hmm. because I do sometimes feel like I'm on a bit of a hamster wheel with 
content creation and all that kind of stuff. I think that's natural. Yeah. It's something that I see in a lot of content creators. I mean, I asked like every content creator that I spend time with, like, mm. do you ever feel that? Way? I, I've, I've felt that way from time to time. Yeah. Although I don't make a whole lot of money off my content. Mm. You know, my newsletter, I sometimes feel that way, but I only, you know, I send it twice a week. The Friday one is more of like a kind of curation. So that never feels like a ton of work because I'm, it's just things I'm consuming during the course of the week. It's relatively easy. The Wednesday one now and then, but I have so many things I think about on a daily basis. It never feels like I'm stretching to write something. Um, And so I don't, I never feel like it's the core of my economic engine, which prevents me from feeling like there's a there's a hamster wheel. Sometimes I feel it in the context of growth because I'm so growth oriented that I just want to be growing on all the platforms, which means you have to create on all the platforms. You need to be putting out a tweet, a YouTube, you know, or a Instagram video, a LinkedIn post like every single day. And if you don't have anything to say, well, it's like, well, shit, okay, what am I going to post? What am I going to have to think? I got to think about it. And that sometimes can feel that way. But again, I come back to like, okay, so what? Like, I'm just not going to post anything. It's okay. It doesn't matter. Um, what motivates you? Like wh- why? Like when you talk about um, when you talk about uh, wanting to, you know, level up your skills, and mm. you know, you say like, because then I can, you know, earn money no matter what, and if things go bad, I can yep. make money. Like, what are you? Are you trying to make a certain amount of money? Like, what is the what is the goal? Like, what are you really trying to do underlying all of this? It's a good question. I think I am trying to do. Essentially, I'm trying to play, I'm I'm trying to keep on playing my infinite game mm-hmm. in the sense that right now, I feel like if I won the lottery, there is very little that would change about my schedule. I wouldn't, other, other than the fact I wouldn't run courses anymore and I would not take on any sponsorships. Those are like the two areas where the reason I'm doing the thing is for the money. But I would still make YouTube videos. I would still do podcasts. I would still hang out with people like you and I would still want to have a team that would help me create content and share it with the world because that's the thing that brings me an intrinsic joy in Mm -hmm. some capacity, like teaching and sharing and stuff. And so given that that's the infinite game, what I'm trying to optimize for is just being able to continue living that kind of life Mm -hmm. where I can wake up every morning and think that, yeah, I don't, I don't need to, I don't have to do something. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason I'm, I feel I'm so like tied to that idea is because Throughout my time in medical school and throughout my time working, I saw so many examples of doctors who hated their lives. Mm -hmm. And the reason they hated their lives was because basically because they didn't have enough money. They would choose to go part-time if they could, but they couldn't go part-time because they needed, they had a certain lifestyle, mortgages, et cetera, et cetera. Um, A lot of them would, would have wanted to quit the job completely and like take a break from medicine to travel the world or to do something else or to build a business or whatever the thing might be, or even spend more time with their kids, Mm -hmm. but they couldn't because they didn't have enough money. Mm -hmm. And so I've seen firsthand that future where being a doctor is supposed to be a fulfilling and job where you help people and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Actually, I'd say at least half the doctors I've ever met were just like so chronically dissatisfied with their life mm. that it made me feel like, damn, I never want to be in that position where I feel like I'm shackled to a job for the sake of the money. Mm. And so right now I feel great because it's like the thing that I'm doing for fun is also the thing that makes money. But the thing that keeps me up at night is what if this all crumbles down? What if the YouTube channel starts to decline? Because every YouTuber has a growth phase yeah. and then a plateau and then a slow decline over time. You become a has-been. No one cares about your content anymore. AI Why is taking happen? over. Like, Why does that happen? I've always wondered that. Like, From the very early days of doing my creator stuff, I started building these like businesses that are underneath the holding company because 
I had had that realization that like no one really wants to create for longer than some period of time. And it's probably not how long I'm going to be wanting to do things for or earning money for. Mm. And so I need to be building things that have either enterprise value or they have, you know, that I can sell or they have cash flow that I can be converting into other things that are going to generate income in the future. Um, and I need that because I know I'm not going to be wanting to do the things that make money from a media standpoint forever. There's going to be some point where either I'm burned out or, you know, whatever it is. So what, what do you think contributes to that, you know, that natural curve that people have, like the growth phase, the plateau? The- yeah, I I feel like, okay, so I haven't, I haven't really thought about it too hard, but, 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 but let's think out loud. So I think the people in entertainment, like the lifestyle type vloggers and things, have a way steeper rise and steeper decline hmm. because it's so based on like, people following their personality or their vibe at a certain stage of life. Mm-hmm. Like for example, the people that most people watched when they were teenagers, the vloggers and stuff that were doing pranks are probably not the same people as the ones are watching when they're 25 years yeah. old. And so the in some cases, the audience literally outgrows mm. the creator. I think in, in other cases, and I see this often in, in education, if for example, you are a Gary Vee and people are consuming your stuff, at some point they get the message and they do their own thing and they mm-hmm. stop consuming Gary Vee stuff because it's mm-hmm. no longer relevant for them. And so there's natural churn in the Gary Vee audience mm-hmm. where you no longer need to consume personal development. Like I would say Tim Ferriss is the one person outside of my family who's most changed my life. Mm-hmm. But these days I consume 0.1% of his content. Mm-hmm. But if I ever met Tim Ferriss, in, Tim Ferriss in real life, I'd be like, oh my God, mate, you've changed my life so much. Yeah. Like I've listened, I listened to every episode of the podcast from like zero to 150. Mm-hmm. And then I stopped because then, then I built my own thing based yeah. on the inspiration I took away from that. So there's natural churn in the audience in that sense. I think tech YouTubers have done a good job of staying relevant for a long time. Like Marquez and Linus and stuff have been around 15 years and still and show no signs of declining. Because I think then the focus is on the tech Hmm. and every year a new tech comes out and therefore there's new stuff to cover. Mm -hmm. And so their expertise on this new thing of tech becomes more valuable over time Hmm. rather than less valuable. But I think there's, yeah, I I feel like there's just a... I think there has to be a just like, natural burnout not necessarily burnout in the sense of like oh my god i'm burnt out yeah but it's just a lot of work to Mm. continue to create videos over a long period of time to continue to feel like you need to be on to be like in a sense performative like it is you're performing you're Mm. like acting in a certain way and we all play a character in in our lives right like at some point during your day when you turn on the cameras for us to come in here, like we perk up a little bit yeah. <laughs> and we're smiling and we're talking and not that we weren't doing this before we turned on the cameras and like all of a sudden it's this big acting show, but you turn on and that's tiring when you do that day in and day out for 10 years. It's just, a, it's just a lot. And so not only is there like potentially a demand side thing of, you know, people not necessarily wanting your content after a certain period of time, but there's also the supply like you, the supplier of it might be tired at some point of doing, you know, the same type of thing or feeling like you're creating the same video, like personal finance or finance people. It's like, how many dividend videos can I possibly yeah. make before I've like talked about <laughs> dividend stocks and like, I know what I'm creating. And for me, you know, I, I would say that like at the very early days of creating my content online and when I was writing on Twitter, it was like, 
it was very much about niche finance stuff. And I was writing about that. And I just realized very quickly, like, man, I don't like writing about this stuff. I am bored. And I, because I didn't care about it. It didn't matter to me. It wasn't a big part of my life. It was what I was doing for a job, my mm -hmm. day job. And so it felt natural that I had credibility to write about it. But I realized, like, if I'm going to have longevity in this, I need to expand my circle of things I can talk about. And you know, you get yelled at every single time you expand your circle. Like someone will say like, stay in your lane, bro, whatever. Like, you know, when I wrote about mental models, people were like, oh, you know, stay in your lane. Why are you writing about mental models? Or, you know, when I started writing about you know, philosophy stuff, people are like, whoa, like you can't write about that. You're a finance guy, whatever it is. Yeah. And I've been pretty intentional about trying to just write about my own life struggles now. You know, like I I'm kind of on a journey now where like I went from writing about like the hustle bro type stuff of the early days to you know relationship things and my wife and i going through having a kid and now like being a dad and contending with like what that looks like and balancing that across wanting to perform well as a professional yeah. person but also being an amazing dad and there's a lot of people on that journey as it turns out like there's a lot of people who are trying to wrestle with that and are going on that same life journey and so my bet is that i actually don't have to ever give anyone answers like everyone is always saying, oh, you know, like, te you know, that you're teaching things like for you, for your YouTube, like you're teaching things, right? Like people say like, oh, you're a great teacher. You're doing all this stuff. I actually don't feel like either of us. And I certainly don't feel it for myself that w that I'm a teacher. I feel like I'm learning things and mm -hmm. I'm sharing what I learn along the way. And I say that on my profile, but I, it really means something to me because no one has the answers to offer you for your life. Mm -hmm. There's no one in the world who can say, Hey, here, here are the answers that I can give you. And he, if you do this, 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 and this, you're going to be on the path to a successful life. And, you know, there, go off and you're going to be successful. What I can do is help you ask the right questions and give you tools, give you frameworks, give you systems for asking those questions so that you can wrestle with them and figure out what your answers are. Because your answers are gonna be different than mine. Hmm. And what you want and what your definition of success looks like and what motivates you, your idol of you know what you're being motivated by on a daily basis, is just gonna be different than mine. And that's great, that's the beauty of it actually, is that we're all on our own journey. And so I am just so much more focused now, and it's what's allowing me, I think, to be excited after these couple of years and to have longevity around it, hopefully, is thinking more about questions and struggle than about answers and like I've accomplished anything. Yeah, yeah, I think that's pretty pretty similar to how I think about it. Um, I you know came across an interesting way of thinking about this through my writing coach a couple of years ago, which was you don't need to be a guru; you can be a guide instead, mm. like guide versus guru. Um, and you sometimes don't even need to be a guide; you can be a, a fellow traveler along the same path. Yeah, stumbling traveler along yeah. the path. <laughs> And I, th I, th I think about that a lot. Um, this is why still to this day, um, a lot of our videos are titled like how I do X, mm -hmm. like I was working on like, right now about how, how I manage my time, mm -hmm. where I was thinking, yeah, in this video, I'm just gonna share three strategies, plus like a Google Sheets template that I've been getting a lot of value out in the last six months to help me take better care of my time. Mm -hmm. Maybe the more better thing, like, you know, 10 tips to manage your time or 10 tips to level up your life. 10 life-changing life tips yeah. for managing your time. That kind of stuff. But I just, <laughs> You won't believe number seven. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's just part of me that feels that that kind of stuff, it, do, it doesn't feel authentic because yeah. I don't like, just like you, I don't feel like I figured anything out. Yeah. I just have a few things that work for me, yeah. having tried lots of things. Share yeah, them the, online, why not? The one thing that we take for granted for sure is 
we might feel like we're just a traveler alongside on the path, but from someone else's perspective, we might look like the expert alpinist that's on the path next to them. Yeah. And we might be next to them and traveling the path. We might not be the guide or the guru or mm -hmm. whatever it is, but we look different than them in terms of how we're pursuing it. And that's inspiring. And mm -hmm. so if you can share, like, you know, you have the good equipment and the poles and the, you know, the good technique of how you're climbing or how you're hiking, that's really valuable to other people. If you can just share that while you're walking alongside them, that's an amazing thing. Yeah. And we live in this world where there is effectively zero bounds to doing that. It's just our energy. You know, I like, I joke about this a lot that when you're young, you have infinite energy. Like when you're 25, think about when you were 25. Like when I was 25, I had infinite energy. And I assumed that I was always going to have infinite energy, that my whole life I was just going to be like this fired up about everything. And I could work for so many hours and do all this stuff. The reality is that as you get older, your energy becomes more and more finite. And the whole game becomes figuring out how to deploy that finite energy and create the greatest output, create those nonlinear outcomes that exist. And getting better and better at that over time is what the real focus should be. It should be figuring out how to deploy that finite energy into the 10x things, mm -hmm. into the areas that create the most leverage so that you can achieve those nonlinear outcomes. We were talking about the idea of um, kind of comprehensive wealth, like wealth in all areas of life. And kind of we talked a bit about wealth in terms of time. Uh, we've, we, we've talked a little bit, a bit about like physical wealth, I guess. Um, what sort of stuff do you think about when it comes to mental mental clarity, I guess, mental health and mm -hmm. well-being and that kind of stuff. Yeah. I sort of bucket this into, I suppose, three areas. I mean, one is on the mental side, feeling like you are working on things that light you up, that like, you know, people say light your soul on fire. I think that is one of the highest mental callings that any of us can have. You know, like the whole fire movement, the, you know, financially independent, retire early. The retire early part sounds shitty to me. I don't want to retire. Like, I don't want to be 40 and not working on anything meaningful again. I've had friends who have done that. Like, I had a friend, this guy Val Katayev, who you might have seen on Twitter, who probably made $100 million by the time he was 30. And he tried to retire. And he started gardening because he was so bored. He started gardening. And he said he drove himself nuts. Like, he didn't know what to do with himself. He had retired. But he was a driven entrepreneur. Like, he was really thoughtful. He wanted to be working on something. And so now he's, like, doing, you know, 100 things again. He has no financial reason to. But he's doing all these different things. Um, and so that's one for me now, on the mental wealth side is like just working on things that you find meaningful and that you find exciting and that really light you up on a daily basis. The second one is like what I call men mental fitness, which is decision making, you know, learning and growth, um, you know, the ability to kind of like cut through the noise and really make sound decisions, non-emotional decisions. Um, and accumulate knowledge over time so that you can make better and better decisions. I think like Shane Parrish's work, Farnham Street is like the master of this, like where I learned mental fitness from was like reading all of his writings and his his different work over time and absorbing the best lessons from the smartest people in the world. Like you talk about Tim Ferriss and all you learned from him. There's probably 20 people on my list that I feel like I've learned so much from and that I'm now excitingly getting to kind of meet and tell them and thank them for that. But building up that base where you feel like you're learning and growing and developing your mental acuity and mental fitness. And then the third piece is mental health. And, you know, for me, I bucket mental health with like mindfulness, spirituality, like an ability to, you know, to both look within and to think about my own position, you know, within 
I don't know, the broader world and yeah. like contend with the bigger questions of meaning and, and, and life and purpose. Um, but that's the third area that I really think is important to, to get around. And, and frankly, one that like men traditionally have not thought about and have neglected. And me, you know, coming from an athletic background, I never would have talked about mental health 10 years ago. Like in a locker room, you're talking about mental health. And now in hindsight, many of my teammates and myself, like we were struggling with things mentally. And we didn't feel like we had people we could open up to. I saw this stat recently that 50% of men don't feel like they have a single friend that they can open up to about vulnerable things. And that is a massive travesty. I mean, really, it's a loneliness epidemic. We feel alone, whether or not we can be surrounded by people in a pub, and you can feel totally alone. And that's really, really sad that we don't have people that we can open up to in that way. And it's damning and impactful negatively on our lives. Mm. What are your practices on the mental health front? Mindfulness, meditation, do you do any of that kind of stuff? I've never been able to get myself to meditate on a daily basis. I have, I would say two. One has been the cold plunge. Um, you know, I go and get into freezing cold water at about 4.30 in the morning, every single morning. How how, how and why does that work? Like, what's, <laughs> what's, what's going on there? <laughs> so, I mean, the cold plunge has now become this like very trendy thing because Andrew Huberman, you know, has made it really popular and it's become this very polarizing thing on Twitter and on all the, you know, different platforms of like doing the cold plunge. Part of the reason it's been polarizing, by the way, is because there was a period of time where if you just posted a video of yourself doing a cold plunge like every day on Instagram, you could like pretty reliably build like 50,000 follower audience just because they were like popping off. Like every single video would just take off. Um, the cold plunge for me, there are all sorts of physical health benefits that are purported, you know, that like different studies have found. That to me, like if any of that is true, that's all upside and bonus. I view it as a purely mental activity where I wake up first thing in the morning and I have to exert a degree of mind control in order to get myself to do this because I don't want to do it. It's miserable. If you go and you're getting into freezing cold water out on my deck, which is outside in the cold. I got out of my warm bed, 4.30 in the morning, it's pitch black and I have to go outside on my deck and go get into this water. And for me, every single morning, I, you know, the mental gymnastics starts. I'm like, I don't need to do this. I could do it later. It actually be better for me if I do it later because then I'll like really stay in there longer, whatever. You start convincing yourself. And I have to exert that control over myself to say like, nope, I said I'm going to do this. I'm going to go outside and I'm going to do it. And when you do that, it's like a little bit of confirmation bias in your life where your beliefs start creating your reality. Your beliefs about yourself as a disciplined person that does the things that you say you're going to do start getting confirmed by evidence that you're accruing. You create like a little positive momentum of this piece of evidence that you just put on the board that you are doing the things that you say you're going to do. And that momentum starts bleeding out into everywhere else in your life. And so I do that every single morning as a way to just like get uncomfortable and take on some level of voluntary struggle so that whenever the involuntary struggles of life happen, I'm more well prepared for them. Mm. I also find it to be the most peaceful gratitude practice that I can have. I like go and I sit in the water and you're like feeling this crazy experience of like the sensations of like your body's kind of screaming stressful situation and you need to force yourself to just slow down. And every morning when I do that, I just list off things that I'm feeling particularly grateful for. You know, my son, my wife, family, you know, a bird that's flying overhead, whatever it is, like things that I'm just observing or noticing in the moment. And it just forces you to like, really slow down your world 
and stop for one moment every single morning prior to the whole day going into chaos. Um, so that is one thing. And the second big mindfulness practice I've found is just going for walks every single day. Um, I probably walk for about three hours every single day. Oh, wow. Um, partially because I have a son who refuses to sleep other than on walks during the course of the day. And so I will take him on two, you know, hour and a half long walks all around our neighborhoods. And that time, you know, while also being with him because we're like connected in some way is just like the time when I kind of slow down and I can just think. And I don't, I'm not listening to podcasts. I'm not listening to audiobooks. I know you're probably like cringing at that. What, what do you oh, mean? Why? You're not and listening like, on three hours? Speed. Like, yeah. My goodness. Um, <laughs> That's like two yeah. audiobooks a day. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I, and I could, I could read 20, you know, I could read 20 <laughs> books a year, I'm sure by doing that. But for me, that time is for thinking like that's when all the ideas are sort of like mingling in my mind when i'm able to actually um you know just like let my mind run free and that has been a massive massive positive for my mental health mm. finding that time nice uh, a, a couple of weeks ago i started turning the shower to cold after a warm shower and now i feel like that's kind of become too easy and I don't I don't fear it anymore. Have you ever tried getting into a cold shower? I've not tried getting starting? into a cold shower. Nah, yeah, so that's, that's, a, that's <laughs> the next, that's I the next level of that. I think cold showers, by the way, are actually yeah. harder than getting into a cold plunge. Right. A cold plunge is full immersion. Something about the shower for me is really hard with like the beads of water hitting mm. you. It's almost like sometimes, <laughs> sometimes the cold plunge, you know, it's on my deck. And so there were times when it would like be freezing rain or snow. And it's actually worse sitting there when you have like rain hitting you in the face mm. than if you were just underwater. So like sometimes I would be sitting there and the cold rain would be hitting me in the face while my whole body was submerged in water. And the rain hitting me in the face was more unnerving than the actual cold on my body. So I would just like take a breath and go underneath in the freezing water. Mm. Um, so I actually think cold plunges are a little bit easier than the cold shower. Also, just the ability to just turn the knob like, you know, it's there. You can stop it at any yeah. point is mentally quite jarring. Yeah, as you were describing that, that mental challenge of like putting in the discipline and doing the thing, even though you don't want to do the thing, I was thinking, I sometimes feel that about YouTube videos. And that's kind of what I was thinking when, when, you, when, you, when you asked me if it, if it feels like, like a grind sometimes or however we were talking about it, because there is that inertia to getting started. But usually once I've gotten started, then I enjoy the process and then I film the video and afterwards I'm always so glad, like, mm -hmm. oh, down. That was like an hour of filming. I feel like I shared something valuable, which at least one person is going to find helpful. I get to just give the SD card to our editor who's amazing and then just deals with it. And then a couple of weeks later, a video will come out on the channel and there'll be comments from people being like, wow, this was super helpful. But it does feel like, you know, I have to do a lot of procrastination beforehand. Yeah. I'll make like multiple cups of coffee and I'll be like, Anyone on the team need me for anything while yeah. we're here? It's like, yeah. all right, let's, let's maybe go for a walk. People say going for a walk is good. Yeah. <laughs> Eventually, I'll come down to sit down to doing the video, and then I'll be really glad I did the video. And there's part of me that's like, I, I, I sometimes wonder if I'm bullshitting myself in that I tell myself that the life I'm living now is the life I would choose to live if I, if I wasn't concerned about money. But yeah, I still make kind of three videos a week. <laughs> and... I don't always enjoy the opening process of making those videos. I'm always glad I, I, did, I did it at the end. And I kind of think that like, I, I, I don't know the answer here, but I sometimes wonder, should I just make fewer videos so that I only film videos when I feel like it? Or is it actually a good thing for me that I am pushing myself mm -hmm. to do this thing that feels uncomfortable initially, but I'm always glad for it in the long run? I don't I know. Think, what I, do you reckon? <laughs> I think doing hard things is important. 
Hmm. I mean, you're do- you're doing something hard, like you're doing something challenging, and you're pushing yourself through it. I don't think it's, I don't think you would find incredible meaning in a life where you only did things that you were like super excited to do. That's just not. Yeah. that lacks texture right like that lacks those feelings the tension the like um the struggle on a daily basis that actually creates some level of meaning in our lives like when we don't embrace friction we've lived in this world where friction has been consistently reduced over our entire lifetime technology has just reduced the amount of friction in everything you don't no longer have to go to the store if you don't want to you no longer have to talk to people if you don't want to if you want to go out and date you don't have to actually take on the fear of approaching someone at the bar you can just do it through an app and decide if you like each other before actually having to meet in person friction has just gone like this over time and at some point friction actually was what created meaning in our lives Like it was what led to the funny stories of like, oh, I walked up to that girl and she rejected me and then I slipped and fell. And it's really funny. You like later get to talk about that. And I often wonder, are our lives going to be significantly less interesting than our parents and grandparents? Like when when I hear my mom who grew up in India tell stories about her childhood or my grandmother, you know, in India tell stories about her childhood, they are so interesting. Their day-to-day lives, because they didn't have phones. They didn't have anything. They were Mm. out. They had to do things. They had to like go roam through the streets and meet up with friends and get into all sorts of hijinks. And I kind of got to do that when I was a kid. We're the last generation that got to do that when we were kids. Now everyone as kids are sitting on their phones all day. They're like playing video games all day. They're on their computers all day. They're not allowed to go anywhere without tons of supervision. And I really wonder, like with my own son... What is he going to do? Like, what is he going to tell people at a cocktail party? Like, what stories, what funny moments is he going to have from his childhood? Because I think we're just steadily reducing the friction that exists. And as a result, steadily reducing the interesting things and the interesting moments that are happening on a daily basis. That's probably the one thing I miss most about medicine, where they just like the stories and the interesting moments. Like... When I hang when I hang out with, with my medic friends, I don't I don't miss anything about the lifestyle other than the fact when they're like, oh, you know, the other night, like it was it was a nightmare. We had mm. three patients that were bleeding out in front of me, and uh, we were understaffed, and like people were on strike, and so, you know, blah 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 happened, and then like, yeah, one of the patients ended up dying, and that wouldn't have happened if we'd had enough staff, and mm. it's like bloody hell, real stuff, like th- things like that, where yeah. I'm like, fuck, like <laughs> that was my life, yeah, and now my life is this very chill. I get to rock up in a cushy house with a camera's pre-set up for me and yeah. do podcasts with people who I enjoy yeah. ch- enjoy chatting to. There, there's no there's no real sense of challenge. Yeah. Do you stress about views? Do you stress about engagement and views and like are you do, do you kind of feel th- this is the one thing I hate. The reason I ask is cuz this is the one thing I hate about social media and about the platforms in general is I have at times and I'm getting better about it. Now I'm quite good about it. I'm in the stretch where I'm quite good about it. I've at times like allowed it to truly impact my day Mm. and my mood of like something that I did or spent a bunch of time on. It's not going the way I wanted it to, or it hasn't taken off and I thought it should. And I'm in a bad mood Mm -hmm. and I'm not present with my wife or with my son. And then something does really well. And I'm all of a sudden like, you know, chipper, chipper sawhill over here, like talking, everything's great, whatever. Mm. And I realized that and I had to have like, like, come to Jesus talk with myself of like, well, you can't let that kind of thing impact you. Um, 
do you find that like are you when a video doesn't take off the way you think it should do you feel drained bummed how does it impact you um I've, de I've definitely gotten better at it over time and it does sort of sine wave a little bit these days i'm, a, I'm at a phase where i almost never even look at the numbers <laughs> like videos will come out on the channel and i, I wouldn't even realize it <laughs> i'll just go on youtube on my phone because i'm browsing something I'll, i see oh there's some notifications oh people are commenting oh the video's out oh that's cool <laughs> let me get off the toilet so i can actually watch the video yeah. while, I've, while, while i've got a loom recording so i can give our editors feedback and yeah. just be like yeah sick oh nice that was sick that's cool nice yeah. well played like that was really good background music here could be a little bit different yeah and i broadly don't look at the numbers I, I will occasionally look at them. Um, but right now we're in a period where the channel is growing faster than it's ever grown before. And so That's great. It's, it's easy for me to be like, oh, I don't look at the numbers. Yeah. But if the numbers were going down, I'd probably have a lot more existential crises and journaling sessions with myself in a coffee shop on my own or for a walk being like, where's this going? Yeah. Everyone do this. Is, is this the beginning of the end? Yeah. If that's the case, then a lot of like mental gymnastics and CBTing myself out of the concern about that and the fear of uncertainty and the fear of the future towards, you know what, it's fine. Mm -hmm. um, and Lewis Hose, who actually we, you made connection with recently, uh, I, I asked him this when I was interviewed on his podcast like a year and a half ago. And he said that, hey, look, man, I've been in this game for like 10 years and I've realized it's just like a, a sine wave. And there's <laughs> some months where it goes up and other months where it goes down. Yeah. And the same thing has happened for 10 years. So he's now he said he's now stopped yeah. caring about the sine wave. And so I do, I do sometimes think of that phrase, that it's, yeah. it's just a sine wave. It's just, right. the, it's just the way it goes. I think it changes with financial yeah. security too. Um, you know, I think I think a lot of creators really ride really ride the roller coaster because it's that's it for them. It's like I'm living this great life because of this yeah. and if it doesn't go well, maybe the gravy train stops. You know, like especially people that were like crypto creators or mm. like very niche around one particular thing that might have been, you know, a boom bust cycle and now it's gone and you're like, "Oh my god, all my sponsors walked out the door all my because you know they all went bankrupt or they ran out of money and you realize that nothing none of this stuff is permanent yeah and i think that's scary for a lot of people absolutely um, yeah i think especially like the creators i speak to who's yeah, like 80 percent of their revenue comes from brand deals and the other 20 percent from ad adsense and they're not selling their own products they're not trying to build a business around it mm -hmm. that's really scary yeah um because you're so your lifestyle you're is dependent one thing yeah on the whims of people outside of that that are outside of your control yeah you can't control it totally yeah. yeah the yeah sometimes the way i think about it is like if i if if i worry about that too much then it becomes not fun anymore mm -hmm. and so my way of getting around that is thinking you know what right now things are good and while things are good it's it's fine that i have a yeah. team of 13 people that i love working with because it's great vibes if things ever become not good I mean, then we'll we'll just we just downsize the team. Yeah, like if we I tried, can do it myself, I can, I I can do it myself. Like <laughs> me plus an assistant yeah. and an editor. Well, that that three man setup can literally make probably a million a year for at least the next ten years. Yeah, without too much difficulty. If that doesn't work out, even just me, great. Le let's say I lost everything. Now I'm doing the Peter Levels thing. I'm going to get back into coding and yeah. become an indie developer, and that would be quite fun. It's like yeah, I, I I tell myself these stories as a way of kind of hedging against mm -hmm. the inherent uncertainty that's. In, yeah. in, a, in a career like this. Yeah. It's nice to know that if you had to, you could do with very little. Yeah. It's just like a good feeling. I, I'm not a particularly, I'm not a materialistic person. Like I'm not into fancy things. Mm. I, I don't have a watch. You know, I like wear a whoop in, I suppose. I have like a running watch that I wear, a crappy <laughs> yeah. running watch. You wear an Apple watch. I'm not like into cars necessarily. Yeah. Um, you know, I just don't spend money on fancy things. And my wife 
is not into jewelry and she, you know we don't give each other jewelry presents like she's not into bags and fancy clothes and so i often think about that like if everything went to shit like if we were in the great depression 1928 how long could we just like you know default alive with things that we have today and the answer for me at least today is like literally almost in perpetuity like businesses could all go to shit like everything goes out the door because just not that high cost of a life and like i know that i can kind of like hermit if i need to and like do grimy things like i could be a cockroach if i needed to <laughs> um i'm into really nice experiences and like yeah. i like to fly first class when mm -hmm. i fly places and i like to stay in nice places and i do all those things but i don't have to do any of that like i would just not travel or i would just not do those things and so i do think it's like paul graham had this essay of like default alive versus default dead um, and he was talking about it in the context of startups, like, is your startup default alive or default dead? Like, if you were just to stop growing, would you eventually run out of money or not? And I think about that a lot in the context of my own life. Like, mm -hmm. is my life set up in a way that is default alive? Mm -hmm. If we stop growing, if like the channel stops growing in your case, or if um, businesses stop growing, products stop growing, selling, you not doing it anymore, whatever, are we going to be okay? Like, can we find a way to just like be all right in perpetuity? And if the answer is yes, there's a lot of comfort that's drawn from that. Yeah. Um, you yeah, can kind of absolutely. separate yourself. So. Yeah. Like I, fa I found that when I sat down and figured out what does my skeleton crew look like? Yeah. And I realized that it's a fairly lean team. And if I needed to, I could just build, become a web developer myself. Yeah. I was like, okay, cool. Now I can enjoy yeah. the fruits of this and yeah. not think too hard yeah. about like our headcount or, or yeah. things like that. The, um, the idea of one day, I think you mentioned too and alluded to is something that I've found really powerful in my own life as a system. And that's like, I really struggle with the five and 10 year plans. I don't like thinking that far in advance. Every time I've tried to over the course of my life, I've been hilariously wrong. And so all I try to do today is I, I literally sat down and I wrote down what are the elements of my ideal day? Mm. Like, what does an ideal day look like to me? And it's not necessarily specifically like the routines and the exact time when I do it, but it's like, what are the elements of it? The core kind of deconstructed elements. Yeah. And if I do those things over the course of a day, it was like a beautiful day, a perfect mm. day, seven out of seven, whatever the number is. And what I have found is that if I optimize for that, having an ideal day, then having another one, then having another one, and just stacking together ideal days, I will progress in the direction that I'm trying to progress in. Yeah. And it takes so much complexity and noise out of my entire life and system. I don't have to think about five, 10 years. I don't have to think about, you know, all a million things. If I just have one ideal day and just focus on that, it removes so much intimidation for me yeah. um, that it's it's been really empowering. Yeah, for me, it's, it's I've had the same uh, that, that same feeling, except it's an ideal week. Hmm. So like I literally have my ideal week on my Google calendar, yeah. which is color coded with like a little like rainbow colors where... And does it sit alongside your actual calendar? So you no, can see... No, it, it, it is my actual calendar. Oh, it is your actual calendar. Good. Uh, in that like, like for example, this is what it was this morning. One-on-one -on -one with Angus this morning, three and a half hours of book time, various team meetings, filming block, and then this podcast and dinner because Tuesday evenings I've earmarked as this is my default hangout with friends time. Oh, nice. So this week we've Good, got we this. It well. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Next week we've got I've got some uni friends coming coming over for Great. dinner. The week after we've got some more friends coming over yeah. for dinner. And then that's also where I force myself to cook normally, oh, okay. except you yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> wanted to go to restaurants. Michelin like, right? star Indian <laughs> yeah, restaurant absolutely. instead. <laughs> because I like fancy experiences. Yeah. <laughs> whereas, whereas for me, I'm, I'm trying to learn how to cook. And yeah. I feel like the forcing function of having friends over yeah. encourages me to cook and it becomes an adventure and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and I like that ideal week. Yeah. I like that. It mean, and it means I can, I can be like, okay, cool. Wednesday evenings, I want to go visit my mom. Tuesday mm -hmm. evenings, I want to have friends over. 
Thursday, I want to go kickboxing, gym three times a week. Cool. Yep. On a weekend, let's keep that free just because yeah. why not? And yeah. then I want to do the, these blocks of work of deep work in the morning. Yeah. How often do you actually stick to it? How often are you getting derailed from it? Oh, like I stick to it 90% of the time oh, that's now. That's great. Like it's it's been it's been a challenge over time. Yeah. But every one of the real upsides of the whole team stuff is actually like a, a couple of weeks ago I was saying to the team, you know guys, I feel like yeah, things are just kind of busy. I'm, I'm not making I've, I just I'm not making enough time in the calendar to like film videos and like write the book. And one of the members of the team was like, he was like but what that, that, that why not like yeah. that's literally yeah. the thing that we yeah. are all relying on like yeah. you filming videos <laughs> means yeah. that the business does well you writing a book means that hopefully the yeah. business does well what's stopping you yeah and i was like shit you're right and so we actually did like a group I brainstorm in your newsletter it was oh great. nice yeah, yeah a little whiteboard it's like it we great. made we were like monday tuesday wednesday and then we were thinking about it i was like okay right now like my coaching session with eric is like on a tuesday and that kind of derails filming on a tuesday and they're like can't you just move it to a wednesday yeah and i was like that's a great idea. Yeah. What if what if Wednesdays was all my and I was like, but I want to have time. I want to have a calendly where if a cool person wants to connect over Zoom, yeah. it's like I want to be able to talk to them. They were like, what about just doing those on a Wednesday afternoon? Yeah. And I was like, oh my god, you're so right. Yeah. So now I have Wednesday afternoons as like my calls, which I'll take on Zoom while yeah. while going for a walk around Hyde, Hyde Park because yeah. why not? Yeah. And when I follow the ideal week, I'm just like life is great because yeah. I've literally decided what are the elements I want in my life. Yeah. And they're literally in this week. Yeah. And if I and it's it's also great then because if I want to add something new. I know it needs to fit in the, in the calendar somehow. Mm. Like I kind of burned myself out a bit post quitting the job when I was like, I'm going to take singing lessons three times a week and guitar lessons three times a week and art lessons three times a week because yeah. I really want to get better at guitar and singing and art. Yeah. And then after about a week, I was like, oh my God, like I'm not looking forward <laughs> to this anymore, et cetera, et cetera. As now I've decided that like, yeah, if there's no space for it in the calendar, yeah. that means there's no space for it in my life. And it becomes a very easy kind of, by like by virtue of the fact that it's a calendar, yeah. You can't overlap things. Yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. it's just such a nice way of organizing yeah. my time. I love that. I mean, we make time for the things we care about. And it's never a lack of time. It's always a lack of priorities. And so if yeah. something really matters to you, you'll make time in the yeah. calendar for it. It'll become a part of your of your ideal week. I do think that that week framework is a really good adaptation of my day. I'm going to I'm going to go and sit down and look at it now. I think it's like a good yeah. way of a good way of thinking about yeah, it. Yeah, you should a write, kid a thread about it. Yeah. And being married, <laughs> I'm, I'm like I want to see you on this whole journey yeah. because like even now when I hear you say, you know, like three and a half hours on book and the time filming, I'm like, man, I wish I could find yeah. three and a half. And maybe I don't wish because I'm terrible. Like I have such bad focus. Mm. I can't focus for more than like an hour on something. Um, and I'm in the earlier stages of writing my book where it's quite painful because I'm not, I don't have the like close enough deadline that I yeah. feel the urgency I yet. I'm yep. in the like <laughs> abyss of like, well, it's due in six months. Like that's so far away. I'm fine. It's in six months. You can always yeah. stretch it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's going to be like, <laughs> Yeah. two three years probably yeah, yeah exactly um which i'm dreading if that's the case yeah. i'm just like oh god i can't have something hanging over my head um but it is uh, i really like the week framework that's yeah. a good way of thinking about it so thank you so much this has been wonderful this has been any wonderful. any parting pieces of advice wisdom oh. anything you would say for the people who have listened to this far to our two and a half hour long oh, discussion man. <laughs> um my only piece of parting wisdom because i think it relates to a lot of things we've said is never let your quest for more distract you from the beauty of enough. Oh, so I'll end with that. Never Love let that. your quest for more distract you from the beauty of enough. Good stuff. Thank you so much.
Thank you. All right, so that's it for this week's episode of Deep Dive. Thank you so much for watching or listening. All the links and resources that we mentioned in the podcast are going to be linked down in the video description or in the show notes, depending on where you're watching or listening to this. If you're listening to this on a podcast platform, then do please leave us a review on the iTunes store. It really helps other people discover the podcast. Or if you're watching this in full HD or 4K on YouTube, then you can leave a comment down below and ask any questions or any insights or any thoughts about the episode. That would be awesome. And if you enjoyed this episode, you might like to check out this episode here as well, which links in with some of the stuff that we talked about in the episode. So thanks for watching. Uh, do hit the subscribe button if you aren't already, and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.